Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. All right. First Sunday of the new year. Yeah. Yeah. We made it, I guess. I don't know what it means, but we made it. So, uh, well, I, I, for one, I am super excited that uh, we are going to be starting a brand new series this Sunday called Breakthrough. And uh, so when you follow the story of Jesus, uh, it's honestly, it's a remarkable story. I, I mean, there's this man in Israel who spent most of his time here on earth uh, talking to people occasionally performing some miracles, and, uh, and people started following him. And eventually, this man is crucified. He, he's given a, a brutal murder, and he's buried. And so the movement stops, or so you would think. But apparently, there were claims that after three days, this man had risen from the grave. And there are these people who are claiming that they've actually seen him rise from the grave. They've seen him alive. They've interacted with him. They've spoken with him. They've placed their fingers in the scars in his hands. And shortly after, this God-man ascends back to heaven. And his followers get to work teaching the things that he had taught, and so much so that 5,000 people were added to the church in a single day. I mean, it was wild. It was nuts what the church was going through to sit through. And, and let's not just read this like history, but, but let's read this like, what if this happened today? What if something happened that was so impactful today that 5,000 people added to the church just like that? I mean, what if we had 50 people added to the church just like that? I mean, we'd be rejoicing. So, I mean, it's wild to think about what was going on in the church during this time. And, and what this shows us is the resurrection of Jesus is actually remarkably hard to argue against from a historical outlook because we have evidence of the explosion of Christianity. And, and why would people be willing to die for a lie that they knew was a lie? unless they knew that it wasn't a lie, unless they'd seen the risen Savior, unless they'd experienced this God-man. And so the church had a breakthrough. In the beginning of the book of Acts, we see how the church took off and spread from being uh, just this, this little movement in this tiny country called Israel to becoming infectious enough that we would be talking about it today in a city as obscure as Porterville, California. And yet, here we are. Because of this breakthrough that the church had in the beginning of the book of Acts. And so, first and foremost, here's what we have to know. There was a mission, right? Jesus gave his followers a mission. Uh, for anybody to accomplish anything, really, they've got to know what it is they want to accomplish, right? Are you tracking with me so far? For anybody to accomplish anything, they have to know what it is that they want to accomplish in the first place. So if there's going to be any sort of breakthrough, we've got to know what kind of breakthrough it is that we're wanting. So before we jump into the book of Acts, we're going to go back a little bit. We're going to look in the book of Matthew chapter 28. And so Matthew 28 verse 16 
uh, we read this. This is right at the end of the story. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. And it says, now the 11 disciples, 11 because if you know the story, one of the disciples betrayed Jesus and, uh, and it resulted in his death. And so uh, one of, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what's the mission? Go make disciples. Right? Say it with me. Go make disciples. Right? Has the mission changed? Okay, cool. You're awake. No, the mission hasn't changed. Go and make disciples. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward mission, right? Jesus didn't make this super complicated. He's actually really good at simple rules like go make disciples. Don't eat fruit from this tree, right? Easy rules. And uh, we still struggle with them. I guess that's part of being human. Uh, but, but this realistically, this should be the mission of every evangelical church on the face of the planet. I mean, we should be driven by a mission to see every person know and experience the love of Jesus and as a result, begin to live like Jesus. That's our mission. And we don't have a lot of wiggle room here. I mean, the the mission is something that, that, it's not something that each pastor sets at each local church or anything like that. I mean, this started out with Jesus saying, all authority is given to me. It's not to the pastor. It's not to the congregation. It's not to the elders. It's not to the government. There's there's no other point that you fill in there. Jesus said, all authority is mine. And therefore, this this king who can decide anything that he wants, because all authority is his, he says, go tell people about me. Make disciples. Teach them how to live like me. And so that's our mission. Go make disciples. We're to go reach people with the gospel in a way that each person in the world would become a practicing Christian. That's our goal. And I think, this isn't in my notes, so I'm just going to say this, because I think sometimes when we look at something like that, we do the same thing as when we look at the 5,000 that were added to the church, right? And we think, wow, that's crazy. That's, that's something that was so long ago or something that can't be attained now. There's no way that we could ever do that. I mean, we might say that we want to see every person in the city of Porterville reached for Jesus. And we think, yeah, that's a cool goal, but come on, pastor. And I'm saying, look at the book of Acts. Look at what was accomplished. Jesus said, if we have just a little bit of faith, just a little bit of faith, you know what we could do? So where is it? Where is that faith to say, you know what? Yeah, we're going to go out. We're going to believe that lives are going to be transformed. We're going to believe that we can reach all 60,000 people in the city of Porterville. And when we're done there, we're not done. We're going to keep going all of Tulare County. And when we're done there, we're not done. We're going to keep going. And I got to get back to my notes or I'm going to be preaching way too long. But do you get what I'm saying? We're given this mission, and so, so as we take on this mission, let's not take it on like it's some unrealistic, gargantuan mission. Jesus gave us this mission knowing that it could be accomplished. He didn't give us some abstract thing to follow. 
He gave us a realistic task and said, follow me, make disciples. All nations, all people need to know me. And so something really cool happens here. Jesus says this, and and Jesus gives his disciples this command, and then the book of Matthew ends, right? The, The history of Jesus as recorded by Matthew is over. Book finishes, And there are, if you look through your New Testament, there are three more books following Mark, Luke, and John. But if you actually follow that up in a chronological order, the next page should be Acts chapter 1. And so so Jesus commands his followers. He gives them a mission. And then we get a close-up look at them doing exactly what he's called them to do. So for this series, what we're going to do is we're going to camp out in the book of Acts. Uh, we know that we have the exact same mission that Jesus gave the original apostles. And so I think it would be helpful for us to look at how the early church carried out that mission, how they had breakthrough, to see how it's still possible for us to have breakthrough, to see how it's still possible for us to reach massive groups of people with the good news of Jesus. And so what is it that was so special about the early church that caused them to accomplish the mission of Jesus in, a seeming, in seemingly unprecedented ways? What was it that moved them in that way? And so we're going to jump into the book of Acts, chapter 1. And we're going to start right in verse 1. And the author of the book of Acts writes, writes this. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given the commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. In 1972, uh, Walter Michel, a professor of Stanford University, he led a study on waiting called the Stanford Marshmallow Test. And so so what this was, uh, the basic idea was that they would take a group of children who would have to choose between instant gratification or delayed gratification. Okay, so, so the children were given a marshmallow, and then they were told that they could either eat that marshmallow now Or what's going to happen is the person who gave you the marshmallow is going to leave. And when they come back, if that marshmallow is still there, they'll have a second marshmallow for you. And you can have both, right? So here's one now. You can eat it. But if I come back and it's gone, that's all you get. If I come back and it's still here, you get twice as many marshmallows, right? And so they left these kids in these rooms uh, to study this out, to figure out uh, what, what what would be the result of this. And so once the individual conducting the experiment would leave, the child would be left alone in a room staring at a marshmallow with a serious decision to be made. Do I eat it now? Or do I wait until the next one arrives? How long am I going to be waiting here? Right? And so do you know what makes this so difficult? It's actually two things. Uh, One is that you're staring at the prize. You can see the marshmallow. You can smell the marshmallow. And if you really, really want to, you can taste that marshmallow, right? 
And so as you're sitting there staring at that marshmallow, the the tension gets higher and higher. It gets harder and harder to wait. But the second side of it is that you have no idea how long you're going to have to wait. The man who who gave them the marshmallow would just told, he just told them that you have to wait here. And when I come back, if it's still there, you have a second marshmallow. You don't know how long you're waiting. You don't know how long it's going to take for this man to come back with a second marshmallow. I mean, if it's like, yeah, I'm just going to be gone for like 30 seconds. I'll be right back. You'll have a second. Oh yeah, I'm going to wait. But I don't know. Maybe he's going to be gone an hour. Maybe he's going to be gone eight hours. Maybe he's going to work and he's not coming back with that marshmallow till after work. And I just have to sit here and stare at this marshmallow this whole time. And so you sit there and you start to think, man, how long has it been? I mean, I think I was six when they brought me in this room and now I'm like at least eight or nine. And realistically, it's only been like 10 minutes, right? And we know that's how kids' minds think, but we're the same way, right? We're left staring at something like that. It's like, oh man, how long has it been? And time just seems like it takes so much longer when you're sitting waiting, seeing what you could be doing, but you have to wait. And so the men conducting the experiment, uh, ultimately they ended up waiting around 15 minutes, and then they would come back and see how the children fared. And uh, after this, they actually continued to follow the kids and see if the abilities of whether or not they could, they could choose delayed gratification made any real implications on big life issues. And uh, what they found was the children who decided to eat their marshmallow immediately actually li- ended up living in Poplar. And uh, not, not really, that didn't happen. Um, no, what actually happened was they found that the, uh, that the children who were able to delay their gratification ended up ultimately living better lives. Uh, they measured this by means of better SAT scores, uh, educational attainment, lower BMI, and, and other life measures that they would bring in. The kids who were able to sit and wait for something better ultimately that followed them throughout their lives to take something better. And so uh, I think I've learned the ultimate lesson of this study here. Waiting sucks, right? It's the worst. All I get is a second marshmallow. And I don't even know if these are the big marshmallows or the little marshmallows or what, but, but I don't know. But, but imagine for a moment that Jesus has just given you this huge mission. And I don't know about you, but I know that when I'm given a large task, I want to get to work immediately. I want to get this off my plate as quickly as I can possibly get this off my plate so that I can get back to just normal life. I hate the tension of a large task hanging over me. So Jesus gives this huge mission, and then what's the very next thing that we see Jesus say? Wait. Huh? Why would he do that? Why would he tell his followers to wait? Because Jesus knows that there's value in waiting. Jesus knows the benefit of waiting. And ultimately, we live in a world that's inside of time, and and everything that we do and when we do it is dictated by clocks, right? Some of you are checking yours right now to try and figure out how much longer this is going to take. But Jesus lives outside of time, and he lives like it. And I think sometimes that, that to some degree we need to be reminded that our eternal home is just that. It's eternal. It's outside of time. Uh, 
I, I think we also need to be reminded that we can't fix everything. We can't do everything in our lives on our own. I think we need to be reminded that we need help. That the task that Jesus gave us is simple in nature, but maybe it's not so much in practice, right? I mean, technology has had to advance in huge ways for us to be able to reach other nations uh, and other people groups. But there was one massive area that the disciples really needed help. There was one huge reason that they couldn't see breakthrough yet. They needed God, and they needed Him in a big way. Uh, Jesus was getting ready to leave. He, he, had a, he had risen from the grave, and now he's preparing to ascend to heaven. This man, that anything that they ever needed, he'd been there for them. I mean, when Peter made a mistake and chopped some dude's ear off, Jesus just grabbed it and put it back on, like, hey, man, maybe not do that next time, right? And, and so now Jesus gives them this mission. They're like, oh, cool. Wait, you're leaving? And so he says, well, wait. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not leaving you to do this on your own. I mean, have, have you ever had a boss tell you to do something and then show you, and then suddenly you're on your own, and, and you feel like, wait a second, I feel like I missed something. I feel like he didn't show me this whole process yet. And, and you're thrown into this, and you have to start doing it, and, and, and your boss is like, oh, no, you're fine. You'll figure it out, right? I mean, I've never had a boss tell me that, but I've definitely had a boss that has left way too soon. I'm like, huh? You want, I'm, no, he's gone. Okay, well, anybody else know how to do this, right? And that's, that's kind of the position that the apostles are feeling like they're about to be in because now Jesus has been with his followers for three years. He's given them this task and now he's leaving. So he says to wait, to wait. But for what? So then we pick up back in Acts 1-4, and it says again, and while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So who is this Holy Spirit, right? What's so important about the Holy Spirit? Uh, honestly, this is probably one of the most important passages in the book of Acts because nothing that happens in the rest of the book could have happened without this passage here. And so, so here's what we know. Our God, as taught by the Bible, as he's revealed himself to us through the Bible, we believe that's our ultimate authority, that the Bible is true and accurate. And so through that, God has revealed himself as a triune God. One God, we're not polytheistic, meaning we're not worshiping multiple different gods, we're not worshiping three different gods, but we believe that God is one God who has revealed himself through three distinct persons. Those being God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So as God the Son, Jesus, was preparing to ascend back to heaven, he made sure to tell his disciples to wait. Because he knew that they still desperately needed help. He knew that they couldn't do this on their own. They needed the help of the Holy Spirit. See, uh, John 16, 7, which I don't have up here. I'm sorry. You can go back and look it up. It's there. I promise. Uh, John 16, 7, Jesus is talking to his followers, and he tells them that it's good for me to leave. It's good that he's leaving. 
Because he says the Holy Spirit will be sent in his place. See, while Jesus walked with his 12 followers, the Holy Spirit lives inside of every Jesus follower, empowering us to do incredible things in the kingdom. And this is so important because everything that we can ever do to grow the kingdom of God is done through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Listen, we all have gifts and talents and things we bring to the table, but they're nothing without the Holy Spirit. I I can come up here and try to teach, but if I don't get on my face and plead with the Holy Spirit to do this for me, It's going to be a disaster every time. Believe me, I've done it more times than I'd like to admit. So we need him. So so what we know is that the Holy Spirit's come. He lives inside of us. He does these incredible, powerful things to us. But he comes to us as what Jesus calls him as the comforter. And that's, that's maybe kind of a weird way to talk about him, right? Like, I have a comforter. I sleep under it every night. And it's great, especially during winter right now. And, but, but this is, and this is when I was growing up. This is how I was like, the Holy Spirit's the, like, he's like a blanket that I can be warm with? I'm, like, I was missing something. And, and so in that same passage, in John 16, 7, Jesus says that it's good for him to go away because the comforter will come in his place. And depending on what English translation you have of the Bible, uh, it may say the comforter, the helper, or the advocate. And so... This comes from the Greek word uh, parakletos, which, which ultimately, it means someone who walks alongside, but ultimately it means probably more someone who's like an advocate, someone who goes between and pleads on behalf of somebody, uh, specifically, generally, in the case of pleading to a judge on your behalf. And so uh, what we're talking about here is that there's God who is over all of the universe, who is just, who is righteous, and he is a judge over all. And the Holy Spirit is the one who goes between for us, who's in that in-between place between us and God the Father. See, the followers of Jesus needed more power to do what they were gearing up to do, and the Holy Spirit has that power. When the Bible talks about uh, the power of the Holy Spirit, it uses the Greek word dunamis, which is the same place that we get our word dynamite from, right? So the, the Holy Spirit is described as the explosive power of God. He's not just a comforter that we pull over and makes us feel all cozy and good about ourselves, but this is the power of God who lives in each of us. Now, I'm not much of a fisherman, but I do know some fish stories, okay? So uh, I was told once about a man who was masterful fisherman. I, I mean, every time he would go out, he would come back with just loads of fish. And, and people were always perplexed as to how is this guy getting so many fish every single time? And, and it, it seemed like it didn't even matter where he went, he would always get all the fish. And every single time he was bringing these back with him. Well, There was another man who wanted to learn what his secret was. And so he snuck behind him, followed him to his boat, and then he got in another boat behind him, followed him out into the lake, and was was watching him. Finally got into good view of this master fisherman. And he looks out and he notices, as he can see him better now, and you can see in the boat, the man has a small tackle box. And that's it. And he's wondering, what? There's no line, no bait, no rods. What is this guy doing? 
And so as he watches closer, he sees that master fisherman. He opens up his small tackle box, reaches inside, pulls out a stick of dynamite, lights it, throws it in the lake, and a couple seconds later, you hear this under the water, right? And all these fish start floating up to the top. He pulls, starts pulling the fish in, scooping them up into his boat, and goes to grab the next stick of dynamite. And so the man who's watching him reaches into his pocket and pulls out a badge and says, sir, I'm with Fishing Game, and I'm sorry, but you're under arrest. And so at this point, the man reaches back into his tackle box very calmly, lights another stick of dynamite, and hands it to the other man. And says, now are you just going to sit there, or are you going to fish? Right? And so, so here... Jesus, when he originally came on the scene, he met these men and he told them they're out there fishing already. And he says he's going to make them fishers of men. These men already knew how to fish. They knew what it took to fish, but Jesus knew that he could teach these men how to fish. Do you get what I'm saying? That he could show them the power behind this fishing that they had never realized before. See, the Holy Spirit isn't just this comforter. Uh, He's not just the one who makes us feel better, who makes us feel these warm and fuzzies, but he's the one who holds on to us when we're in the dark. He's so much more powerful than what we seem to give him credit for. He's so much more than what we seem to give him credit for. See, we believe that God is Trinitarian. And so we believe that God, the Father, created his kingdom. And here's how this works. If you create a kingdom, what does that make you? Makes you the king, right? So we see God, the Father, as this king. Then Jesus, God, the Son, he comes to earth. He lives a perfect life. He's crucified. He raises from the dead. And there's promises all throughout the Old Testament. And God tells them, Now that this has happened, you're going to sit at my right hand and the entirety of creation will be as your footstool and you will reign over it all. So what does that mean? What is Jesus? He's the king, right? So God the Father, we see as the king. God the Son, we see as the king. And then the Holy Spirit comes in and we're like, yeah, he's the comforter. Right? Do Do you see the disconnect there? Do you see that maybe we're missing some of the attributes of the Holy Spirit? We've got these mighty, majestic king figures in the Father and the Son, but the Spirit is just, just kind of floats around, makes people feel good about themselves. Sometimes he makes us feel bad about ourselves if he needs to, right? But, but that's not the Holy Spirit that the Bible teaches us about. He's, he's more than that. The Holy Spirit is just as much king as God the Father and God the Son are the king. See, we need the Holy Spirit to be the bridge between ourselves and the Father because he is the one who equips us for this supernatural battle that each of us have agreed to be in by following Jesus. He's the king who's on the battlefield with us, going into everything with us, fighting this war alongside us. This is, I don't know about you, but this is the kind of king that I would want to serve. This is the kind of king that I would want to have on my side. See, I I think most of us have probably had bosses in our lives who would tell us to do things and would watch from a distance as as whatever happened. I worked in retail for most of my life. And so I had the bosses who I'd be there with, I mean, outraged customers and just watched as I took it. But I've also had bosses who've seen those kinds of things happen and have stepped in and said, no, if you're going to take punches, I'm going to take punches with you. Can you guess which bosses I liked more? Right? 
And I'm sure if you've experienced that in your own lives, you know which boss you like more. So so as we look at God, we see this king through the Holy Spirit who's in the battle with us. He's part of this. He's not just encouraging us, but he's equipping us and he's fighting this with us. And so these 11 men had committed to following Jesus and they were just told to go into all the world, to every nation, and to teach every single person everything that Jesus had ever commanded them and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Simple task in nature, but maybe not so much in practice. And so, I mean, this is just, there's no way that this small group of Jewish men ever could have accomplished this. But then we see something remarkable. Then we see the followers of Jesus, after waiting, they step out in faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they start speaking in tongues. They start healing people. They start performing all these miraculous things that cause people to believe the story of Jesus. And these people, too, become followers of it because of the equipping of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus knew they couldn't do it on their own. Jesus knew that there had to be somebody flexing that power between God and them to make this possible. He gave them the tools that they needed to reach their mission, but he also, he did comfort them. I mean, imagine you're following God. You're doing the things that God has called you to do, and suddenly you end up in prison. You watch a good friend get murdered. Your family turns their backs on you. And listen, this isn't hypothetical. This was happening to the early church. This was the reality that they were faced with. And so what was it that caused these men to be in prison and as soon as their time came to where they could leave that prison to say, I'm going to keep doing the exact same thing that got me in here in the first place? What was it that caused men to see their friends be brutally murdered and stoned to death and say, I'm going to keep doing the same thing that caused him to end up in that position? I mean, that's not just bravery, right? They weren't just more manly than we are today. And I I know that generations before mine seem to think that my generation isn't very manly just because we can't fix cars and houses and stuff, but who you come to when you need your email and your phone fixed, right? But anyway, no, uh, it it wasn't just that that these were, were manly men, right? That they were more brave than us. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They had something supernatural happening inside of them that allowed them to keep going, that kept equipping them, kept empowering them, kept encouraging them, kept them going through all of the trials that seemed to come their way. This isn't just something that we can pull off on our own as humans. There was something divine happening. The Holy Spirit was in this battle with them. And let's talk for a second, too, because I want to make this clear that this wasn't just these men that were going out and doing these incredible things. Let's talk for a second about the women in the Bible, like Phoebe, like Lydia, like Lois, like Eunice, who are these women that, I mean, listen, we think that that maybe to some degree the culture right now is unfair for women. We have no idea when we look at the times that the early church existed in. 
what was going on for women there. And yet, what was it that caused these women to so boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus? What was it that caused these women to challenge people who had bad theology? What was it that caused these women who had nothing if their husband walked away from them to potentially walk away from that, knowing they would have nothing, and to step out and say, I will follow Jesus anyway, and I will boldly proclaim this, knowing that I'm seeing other women be murdered because of this, I'll still step out. What was it that caused that? The Holy Spirit working in their lives saying, I am in this with you. You're not alone in this fight. I'm equipping you. I'm empowering you. I'm encouraging you. And and so listen, at this point, it's not about whether you believe in the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, whether, whether or not you believe those still exist today. The Bible is clear that the Holy Spirit equips his church. There's a reason that this movement called Christianity is still around. And it's because the King, Holy Spirit, has stood in the gap for his church and has empowered men and women in impossible ways to continue the trajectory of bringing light into this dark and broken world. So we'll wrap up this way. I, for one, I'm excited about the future of this church. I'm excited about what's to come in the city of Porterville. I'm excited about what I know my God can accomplish if his people will follow him. But as we wait for breakthrough, in what ways are you pressing into the Holy Spirit? In what ways are you asking for him to empower you in miraculous ways, so that when you do go out into the community, listen, we may not be facing the persecution that the early church faced, but what we are facing is loads and loads of fear. And so in what ways are you pressing into the Holy Spirit, asking him to keep that fear from you, to make you more bold, to help you to reach out to this broken world, knowing that we have the solution? knowing that we have a God who can fix this world, who wants to fix this world, and so that we bring this message because we know that our God is alive. We know that he is very much in love with us, and we know that he offers salvation to everyone. And so we press into the Holy Spirit. We believe that he is who he says he is, that he doesn't just make us feel things, but he's in this fight with us. He's a part of this battle with us. And he's begging us to come along and fight a little bit harder with him. And so God, we come to you today uh, thankful for who you are. We're thankful for the way that you work in our lives. And we ask that your spirit would be present here this morning in ways that would be convicting us, in ways that would be encouraging us, in ways that would be calling us out to something a little bit deeper, a little bit more intense than we're prepared for. And help us to step out in faith. Give us that confidence. Give us that boldness. Help us to love you the way that you've loved us. And help us to love the city of Porterville the way that we know that you love them. God, we pray that you would do spectacular things through us. We pray that we could be your vessels, that you could use us, and that we could see what what it is you're wanting to do in your kingdom here in this city. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.